Hey there, friend. You know, weight loss can be a pretty tricky subject, especially if you've already lost some weight and you're working on those last 10 to 15 pounds. It's definitely a different experience than when you're trying to lose the first 10 to 15 pounds. Lots of people have a whole lot of opinions, and it can feel pretty lonely to be working on those last few pounds by yourself. That's why I'm bringing back a beloved free training called Losing the Last 10 to 15 Pounds. We are going to talk about what losing those last pounds is, and more importantly, what it's not about. We'll bust through the myths, and we'll talk about what's really needed to lose those last 10 to 15 pounds. And finally, I'll share with you how to lose the last 10 to 15 pounds in a way that is loving and safe and healthy, and most importantly, a positive experience for you. I'll be presenting live twice on Tuesday, May 21st, 2024, once at 11 a.m. Central and the other at 7.30 p.m. Central. I'll answer your questions live and we'll have a great time together. But if you can't make either of those times on that day, I'm not going to leave you hanging. We are offering several watch parties through the rest of the week and even on the following Saturday. So come and watch the replay with other doctors and interact in the chat with them and my team. So either way, whether you come live or to a watch party, it will definitely be worth your time. All you have to do is register at katrinaubellmd.com forward slash lose the last. That's katrinaubellmd.com forward slash L-O-S-E-T-H-E-L-A-S-T. Now, please enjoy the show. You are listening to the Weight Loss for Busy Physicians podcast with Katrina Ubell, MD, episode number 207. Welcome to Weight Loss for Busy Physicians, the podcast where busy doctors like you get the practical solutions and support you need to permanently lose the weight so you can feel better and have the life you want. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating and exhaustion and move into freedom around food, you're in the right place. Well, hey there, my friend. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here on this last episode of 2020. We're doing it, people. We are going to be done with this year. (laughs) We are going to be done and all the things with all the things that have come With this year, I have a really, really good episode for you. I think of it as like a gift for you heading into the new year. This is like, if I could just package up a gift for you and hand it to you, it would be this podcast. So please, please listen. I know it's it's not one of my shortest ones, but this is everything that you need to be hearing heading into a new year, starting off with a new clean slate. Oh, it's going to be so, 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 so good. I just, I know you're going to love it. Okay, I have got someone really amazing on the podcast today. His name is Rick Hansen. He is a PhD psychologist, and he's written several books. I'll tell you all about it in just a minute. But he is, first of all, just a lovely human being, as you're going to be able to tell as you listen to our conversation. He's just like, I I wish he could just sit on my shoulder and talk to me all day long. <laughs> and it just is, it's very soothing. Honestly, in, in a way that like Mr. Rogers was soothing to me as a child, like literally, I, I got that kind of vibe from him. It was, oh, this is amazing. I was not really allowed to watch television very much at all growing up. We lived in Southern California. My mom was like, go outside and play. So we did. But anyway, I was allowed to watch Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers because they were on as she was preparing dinner. And so I think that kept us out of her hair so she could make dinner. And you know, by that point, we were kind of tired and stuff. And so I didn't have like Saturday morning cartoons or and like none of that is nostalgic to me. But Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers are and Rick just really it hit me with that, that safe feeling that I always got when I was watching Mr. Rogers. Anyway, that's an aside. Okay, let me tell you about him. So he's a psychologist, senior fellow of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 29 languages, and they include Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. There's 900,000 copies published in English alone of those books. Now, the main books that we're going to be discussing on this interview are Resilient and Mother Nurture. But after we finished recording, he was telling me about Neurodharma and how great that was. And if you want to take a deep dive, that is an amazing book as well. His free weekly newsletter has 185,000 subscribers and his online programs have scholarships available for those with financial need, which is awesome, right? 
He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. An expert on positive neuroplasticity, which he will explain and go into depth on, if you haven't heard of that term, which I hadn't, his work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, NPR, and other major media. He began meditating in 1974. (laughs) Maybe that is why he's so calm and makes me feel so good, right? Because he's been meditating for so long. And he's the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. He loves the wilderness and taking a break from emails, which sounds really smart to me. I enjoy nature and taking a break from social media. (laughs) That's what I would put down. That would be my, my version of that. It's so good. So anyway, we talk about so many good things. I can't even begin to touch on it. We talk about self-compassion. We talk about resilience. We talk about women in the workplace. We talk about how to, what to do when you feel like you're not doing a great job in every single area of your life. And you feel like you're letting down people constantly. I mean, I'm telling you the way he describes how to handle that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that will be and that will be new for me moving forward. I will never forget that. So good. So please enjoy this interview with Rick Hansen. He is he's really he's a good egg. And he's got some really good information that I know so many of you are going to benefit from. So as I said, consider this my gift to you and his gift to you on you know, tying up 2020 and starting 2021 with a new, fresh set of eyes and experiences, and just really creating exactly what you want for yourself in your life. Okay, happy new year. I will check in with you in 2021. Enjoy this interview. And I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Well, Rick Hansen, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, Katrina, I'm glad to be here as well. And honestly, it's a lot out of appreciating you and frankly, the stream of benefit that flows through you to physicians and then and others and then through them to many other people. So I definitely wanted to do this. And I'm glad to be part of the contribution you're making. Thank you. And you know, it's funny that you say that about like how it all flows through. I think about that too. I think about when I was in practice, I felt really actually very connected to helping the families and the children that I took care of. And I really felt like I made a difference. You know, I I had lots of evidence that what I did was valuable, Mm -hmm. but when I transitioned to this line of work, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm touching so many more people. And then they go and touch their patients. Like this helps everybody. And it's it's very cool. I love that. So I always like to have any guests come on and just kind of give a brief introduction. I would love to just hear a little bit about your story, how you got into this work, what you do now. Okay. Well, I'll start at the end. I'm a clinical psychologist and author and teacher and including through online programs, which people can find out at my website, which you'll have in the bio, but also it's rickhanson.son.net. And and almost everything I offer is for free. So people are welcome to go to my website, see all the resources there, short meditations, videos, PowerPoint slide sets for professionals, greatest hits of scientific papers, all kinds of really practical things to do, mindfulness instructions, et cetera, et cetera. So that's Check that out. How I got here, it's really interesting. What a long, strange trip it's been, right? That's a Grateful Dead lyric. Yes. I'm old enough to know that lyric. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was a shy, nerdy kid, started college young at 16 and pretty miserable. And fairly soon I realized that things began to change when I deliberately looked for ways to internalize the experiences that were good for me so that they gradually left residues inside that I could feel and that helped me feel more confident, secure, worthy of love, like I existed, and so on. And then as the years have gone by, I've come to understand through what's called positive neuroplasticity, how that intuitive embodied process of internalization I would do when someone just smiled at me or someone said, good job, or some super duper quarterback in my intramural football team threw me the ball and said, good catch, Hanson, right? (laughs) Whatever it might be, large and small, if I slowed it down to feel it in my body for a breath or longer, later on, decades later, as I became a psychologist, I learned that I was actually hardwiring those experiences into my own nervous system and gradually building up traits of self-worth, confidence, and capability. And so that 
really set me on my way. I would say professionally, I'm centered at the intersection of three circles, clinical psychology, neuroscience, and perennial wisdom. I also began to meditate in 1974, did it in a pretty sloppy, casual way for many years. But then starting around 30 years ago, I got pretty, pretty deliberate about it. And that material, by the way, just in passing, I should say, is front and center in my latest book called Neurodharma, which is a way of talking about the practical tools we can find at the intersection of these three circles, clinical psychology, neuroscience, and contemplative wisdom. So that's me today. I think of what I do is really at the heart of, and I think you too, at the heart of self-reliance. I mean, it's easy to frame what we're talking about as some kind of yuppie luxury. But actually, the harder that life is, the less people are supported, the less privileged or advantaged they are, let's say, the more important it is to grow inner strengths, inner resources of various kinds inside themselves that stick to their ribs, as it were, mentally, uh, so that they can then draw on those positive traits every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Tell me more about positive neuroplasticity, because Mm -hmm. I know about neuroplasticity and I know about positive psychology, but diving into your work was the first time I heard those words together. So explain a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, it's a very simple notion that's centered in the stress diathesis model that's familiar to healthcare providers, which is that the, the course of a person's life or day is a function of three factors, three kinds of factors, challenges, vulnerabilities, and resources, right? And so if we are to meet our challenges out in the world or in our physical body or in our mind, or address vulnerabilities out in the world, in the physical body, or in our own minds, we need to grow resources out in the world, in our physical body, and in our mind. I focus on resources in particular because that's where the greatest opportunity is. Generally speaking, challenges and vulnerabilities can be pretty intractable. And then in terms of resources, I focus on resources in the mind, partly because I'm a psychologist, but, and also because, though, mental resources such as grit, gratitude, compassion, commitment to weight loss, clearing away, as you write so clearly about, uh, clearing away those beliefs and ideas and so forth that get in the way, right? Those are all have to do with mental resources. Well, Mental resources are something we can intervene in all the time, though we're limited in when we can intervene out in the world or in our physical bodies. And then also, we take the fruits of our practice wherever we go, because wherever you go, there you are, right? There your mind is, yeah. (laughs) So, okay, so then the question becomes, how do people develop whatever would be useful these days? For example, commitment to treatment for patients you know, adherence to treatment goals. Or if you think about the AMA's estimate that roughly 50% of the disease burden in the developed world has to do with psychological factors, primarily stress, Mm -hmm. addictive behaviors, reactions to things, depression, and so forth. So if we want to help people, for example, develop commitment to treatment compliance, that's an internal resource. If we want to help people learn how to feel more securely attached in their adult relationships, even though they had a rocky childhood, that's an inner resource. If we want to help people be more resilient, if we want to help people retain a fundamental sense of inner peace, even in the middle of a, of a very serious plague, that's an inner resource. So then the question becomes, how? How do people become, as traits, increasingly happy, loving, and resilient, and wise. How does that actually happen? Well, the change process of any durable kind requires a lasting physical change in the body, particularly in the nervous system and its headquarters, the brain. That's a very key point. Think of all the advice we give our patients or clients. Think of all the positive resolutions we have. Think of all the good feelings we get, you know, after Mm -hmm. some Pilates or yoga or meditation. Great. How much of that actually lasts an hour or week or year later? Extremely little. That's because we're not converting states to traits. We're not learning from our experiences. Experiences are easy. Where the gold is, is the particularly implicit learning is called the residues in the body, in our attitudes, in our moods, in our sense of self that remain 
and gradually shift who we are along the way. That's process neuropsychologically is summarized as positive neuroplasticity. Plasticity being the capacity of a system to change, as you know. Neuroplasticity, the capacity of the nervous system to be changed by the experiences and information flowing through it. And positive neuroplasticity is simply changing the brain for the better. My own particular interest here is in how people can be active agents of their own change process. In other words, their own learning process, how people can be super learners, because learning is the strength of strengths. It's the one that grows the rest of them. So if we learn how to actually register whatever it is that someone like you say is trying to teach them, or if we get better at helping people learn not to shame themselves for the current physical state of their body, while nonetheless doing what they can to change it for the better, that's really important learning, right? Critically important. important. Yeah. If we are interested in helping people learn in those lasting ways, well, there are things people can do. And there's things, there are things that we can teach people to do just simply inside their own minds while they're feeling something, while they're experiencing something to um, heighten the neuroplastic processes that convert that experience to lasting changes of neural structure or function. And the how of it, I've written extensively about it in my book, Resilient, and also in Hardwiring Happiness. But the gist is really simple. It's summarized in that classic saying, I'm sure you know it, neurons that fire together, wire together. together. So we have the two-stage process, firing and wiring. Wiring is where the money is. Wiring is where the real gold is because that's the lasting value. That's the return on our investment, as it were. That's what we earn from our experiences. So from a practical standpoint, whenever we're having a beneficial experience that we want to internalize, could be a moment of just looking out the window and taking a breath, you know, that 10 minute break at the ready room or whatever. It could be a sense of camaraderie with other people who are with us on the front line of healthcare, whatever it is, stay with it for a breath or longer. The longer neurons are firing together, the more they'll tend to wire together. Feel it in your body. The more embodied experiences are, the more that there are a wider or wider scale patterns of neural activation that underpin our experiences through feeling it in the body, the more we're going to tend to internalize it. Focus on what's rewarding about it. What feels good about the sense of camaraderie? What, you know, what feels good about feeling reassured that something we worried about, we're okay, we dodged that bullet, you know, like what feels good about it? Which, by the way, highlights activity focusing on reward, what feels good about it, or is uh, enjoyable or meaningful. Highlighting the reward value of experiences increases dopamine and norepinephrine activity in the hippocampus of the brain. And to kind of unpack that mumbo jumbo, maybe for people who didn't go to medical school, dopamine and norepinephrine are neurochemicals that are associated with reward. And norepinephrine in particular is associated with a sense of, of heightened alertness or salience that something's important. Pay attention, this matters. Well, when we're having a sense that our experiences and we're focusing on the sense of them as rewarding, as dopamine and norepinephrine activity increase in the hippocampus, a key part of the brain that's involved with learning, the experiences at the time are flagged as for as keepers. They're flagged for prioritization during consolidation over hours and days and even weeks into the neural nets of memory. So the bottom line is really simple. Have it, enjoy it. Uh, when you're having useful experiences, a useful idea, a useful experience, a feeling in your body, Enjoy it. Slow it down. Have the humility of receptivity to appreciate that we need to help our brains receive beneficial experiences in for in general, period, and also to compensate for the brain's negativity bias, which makes it yes, very good at exactly. learning from bad experiences, yes. but and relatively bad at learning from good ones, even though learning from good experiences of psychological resources is how we grow them. 
Yes. Well, learning from bad experiences is how we stay alive, right? Now, learning from from good experiences is how we have that fulfilling, enjoyable life that we want, that we know we're capable of. It's like deep down, I think we all have this inner knowing that that's possible. But I think so many of us, you know, myself included for really most of my life, like I just didn't know how to get there. I didn't, I kept thinking that Mm -hmm. it was other things that were going to create that for me that were not the thing at all, that were not actually creating that. So can I comment on yeah, that? You, you may know this this metaphor from Tibet. It's a hell realm. They talk about these heaven realms and hell realms, mm. you know, metaphorically or who knows, you know, cosmologically. Yeah. <laughs> right. But anyway, hell, you know, and this is there's a particular hell realm of the hungry ghosts. These are beings with godlike powers. Sounds like people in the developed world. Godlike mm. powers with enormous appetites, symbolized by these gigantic bellies, who can satisfy their appetites only very, very slowly through pinhole mouths. Oh, it's interesting. Realm. And to me, it's a poignant metaphor for a lot of consumer culture and a lot of driven professional life yeah. in Western countries. People, a lot of, me included, a lot of, you know, history of drivenness, history of success, history of ambition, mm-hmm. and always moving on to the next thing before registering and receiving and slowing down to take in the current thing. You know, it's like we're having one typically, you know, neutral or positive experience after another. Most people are some very important exceptions, but on the whole, people tend to have predominantly neutral or positive experiences, but we tend to move on from the current positive experience held in short-term memory buffers so quickly that whatever was held in memory buffers does not have time to begin to transfer into long-term mm-hmm. storage before the next experience, yeah. the next post, the next Twitter item, the next yes. Facebook thing, the next call, the next page, the next patient comes in to dislodge the current experience before it has a chance to sink in. Yeah. That totally resonates completely. And just think too, like even when my children were were younger, you know, like Mm. the mother of like toddlers and how they'll say something cute or whatever, but then before you know it, something has spilled or, you know, they, they melt down so quick. And then now you're trying to, you know, like deal with that or whatever it is. Like, I remember sometimes just thinking like, these are the good moments. Like, remember this. (laughs) Otherwise it really does feel like it wasn't fun at all. Like you didn't have a good experience of it at all. I just, I think that that toddler, like a mothering toddlers yeah. is like a really <laughs> a defining time like that. Oh no, very, it's very funny. Well, our, our kids are now 33 and 30. So, you know, we've been down this road a while. My first book, Mother Nurture, published by Penguin in 2000, was really central about that. Uh, I was very interested in the, lo- in the long-term stress and depletion of the people, people who are doing all of the bearing and most of the rearing of our children. And I've come, to, I've come to believe based on the evidence and research evidence for it that the long-term stress and depletion of mothers is the greatest unacknowledged public health problem in the developed world, clearly. And, and it's so obviously clear that if we wanted to change the planet in a generation, we would make the welfare of mothers our number one public policy priority. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I hadn't planned on going down this route, but let's talk about that a little bit more because Mm. something that comes up for, you know, obviously not all women are mothers, but many are. Three and and four in America. Yeah, Yeah. in America. And so what I find, you know, has happened, I mean, I coach on this all the time, is so many women, Mm -hmm. and, and it's not just doctors, it's, you know, any woman who's working really like full time or in a, you know, a, a kind of consuming professional environment, but particularly with doctors, where often they are also the breadwinner of the family, mm-hmm. right. that they feel such a conflict of they want to have the family, then they have children. Yeah. And this conflict of when you're home, feeling like you're doing a bad job at work, like you mm-hmm. should be there and, yeah. you know, helping your patients more. And then when you're at work, feeling like you're doing a terrible job at home. Yep. And I also am curious what your thoughts are about whether, you know, women physicians mm-hmm. maybe take more of that nurturing tendency to their patients mm-hmm. and in a way almost create like a very large family for themselves in terms of their patient uh-huh. panel, where men might have a different kind of boundary for themselves or 
a separation that that women have a harder time drawing as a line. It is a hugely interesting topic. It's loaded with landmines, so we have to be careful <laughs> right. about So acknowledge the upfront exactly. that we're using generalizations and then people can yes. see what's, what fits and so forth. Well, so much we could explore here. Some facts that I think are really quite shocking when they actually land. And that book, Mother Nurture, which is very well referenced, is really about supporting the long-term health and well-being of mothers in body, mind, and intimate relationships, important relationships. So it's it's a there's a statement of the problem, but there's this kind of comprehensive approach to deal with it. And mm-hmm. so that said, a couple of key facts. Number one, studies have shown that in a typical heterosexual couple raising children, the woman is on task on average about 20 hours a week more than her partner is, whether or not she's also drawing a paycheck. And as a side point, in one in four heterosexual couples in America, the woman is earning more than the man, right? Mm. So times Mm -hmm. have definitely changed from my own parents' generation. So there are clearly major inequities in the workload, and in particular, in the stress load. Mothers and heterosexual couples and This finding might also be present perhaps in same-gender couples, same-sex couples. They tend to do the higher stress activities like settling sibling quarrels, while fathers do lower stress activities like, I don't know what, balancing the checkbook or mowing the lawn, which I can tell you are both kind of meditative and peaceful and (laughs) much much easier than trying to get a toddler into a car seat who doesn't want to go there. That's really quite profound to realize. It's also profound to realize that studies show in terms of cortisol release, that being a stay-at-home parent is more stressful physically than most jobs. You have to look to people who are maybe, you know, in an ER, let's say, or working in a combat zone or an Mm -hmm. inner city police officer, let's say, to find comparable levels of stress. Oh, that's really, really quite shocking. And I find that while Mothers have moved into the work, women have moved into the workplace, including mothers, long overdue, Mm -hmm. still incomplete addressing of inequities there. Men, as a generalization, have not equally moved into the home front. And Mm -hmm. so you still find this disparity, this inequity of effort, while also the so-called village it takes to raise a a child is now generally a hollowed out ghost town for all yes. kinds of other sorts <laughs> yes. of reasons. So you, you see the combination of things, demands on working mothers going up, modest uptick on average in support from a male partner, while simultaneously the support system that mm-hmm. is designed to optimize bearing and rearing of our precious children in hunter-gatherer environments until only 10,000 years ago has been just falling away, especially in America, I think, compared to any other developed uh, country in the world. So it's a, it's a mess. And I think that's why it's, it's so important to do what we can at the policy level. But yeah. meanwhile, while we're waiting for the cavalry to come, and it's yeah. slow to come, what can we do individually to respect and honor mothers, including the ones we work next to, and to really have a kind of compassion and respect it's a kind of diversity issue if you're not in that boat yourself to open your eyes as I had to as a man as to what you all are dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. In all kinds of ways. So one and two, obviously, if someone is a mother, it's so central to really, really, really to use the lingo, empower yourself. I think of healthy entitlement that your needs really, 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 really matter, period. Yeah. In their own right. And also pragmatically for the sake of others that you care about. You know, you yeah. need to put your own oxygen mask on first, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I think that that for so long, you know, people would speak of a woman, particularly if she was in a mother role, as like being so selfless. Like that was like the best mm-hmm. possible thing you could say about a woman, like at her funeral or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but yeah. being selfless, right, means that you're giving everything to everyone else and never taking good care of yourself. True. That's, that's not sustainable usually. Yeah. And and still then having a, having a fulfilling and satisfying life for yourself. I mean, maybe it is for some people, but I think that when, if women are raised with this idea of like, you should be selfless or a good mother or a good woman is selfless, 
Yeah. And they're like, but, but who's going to, you know, maybe I'm giving so much, but there's nothing to receive. No one's giving to me. And I think that's where it, it has to circle around. You give to yourself first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's like you were saying with the oxygen mask. So let's talk a little bit about resilience. I love the the image on the front of your book. Resilient is of a tree that looks like it's in kind of like a windstorm. It's really, yeah. really blowing off to the side, which I think is just such a good visual of good. resilience. Right. Yeah. It's like there are going to be storms that we're weathering and can yeah. we stay rooted or are we going to get ripped out of the ground? Uh, right? And that's, that's what we don't right. want. Of course, bend but not break. Bend but not break. Exactly. And the subtitle is how to grow an unshakable core of calm, strength and happiness. And I, I just think that, I mean, what does everybody want that, right? Yeah. We want to be happy yeah. and calm and content and secure and feel strong in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about resilience, actually, let's just first, I, I wanted to know what your definition of resilience is. It's the psychological capacity to recover from stressful challenges while still staying on your course toward important goals. So that definition of resilience, which is a pretty standard one, encompasses both recovery from the worst day of your life and thriving every day of your life in the face of life's challenges. As a simple metaphor, I think of the keel of a sailboat, which I especially value because I was once taught to sail in a boat that had no keel, which I managed to capsize due to (laughs) lack of skill. Next thing I knew, I was bobbing up and down in the Pacific Ocean thinking, dang, I should have buckled my life jacket, my life preserver before I (laughs) fell into the drink. Okay. So the keel, and I think of resilience as that keel, and especially as we deepen, as we grow our resilience, in effect, it's like deepening the keel on a sailboat, which means then that the inevitable waves of life and storms of blow may bonk us. They may shove us one way or another, but they don't flip us over. And also as we deepen that keel, we feel more confident about taking on challenges, trying new things of all kinds, whether it's applying for a step up at work or being one step more vulnerable and speaking from the heart about how things are landing on you or what you might need personally, which also requires inner resources to be able to be comfortable doing that and manage any kind of disappointments you might bump into. So, you know, that's what resilience is about in a nutshell. And we grow resilience and resilience is the result of psychological strengths of different kind. In my book, Resilient, I go through a 12 strengths model that I've developed here, but and I'll just name some of them, which people I think can probably resonate with, including these strengths as in some cases, umbrella terms that include other things within them. Grit, Mm -hmm. gratitude, mindfulness, compassion, learning. Learning is a key strength of strengths. Motivation, intimacy, aspiration, generosity, courage. I mean, these are the kinds of strengths that make us resilient. And if we are to become more resilient over time, that means necessarily hardwiring these strengths into our brains as lasting changes there. Now I have so I I think this is so interesting when you describe those 12 characteristics those qualities I just think that that describes everybody in my medical school class right like mm. I think there's a certain resilience just oh, even yeah. as like that a pre-med point. students that you have to have to even like get to that point. Oh, it's like Navy you know? SEAL training, <laughs> you know, it weeds out the weak, only the strong survive. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Although and maybe so, the strong end neurotically driven, as some of my maybe. physician friends have said to me. <laughs> but so you make it that far. And, you yeah. know, then of course you have to go through your training, which, you know, yeah. is of various duration and various, you know, toxicity, as we say in the, yep. in the, in the field, right. You know, some, some programs are are more, supportive than others. But regardless, nobody gets through that training going like that was a breeze, like that was just the easiest thing I ever did. So I think that, you know, I think we come into that already with some resilience, or maybe we build it as we go through like all the undergraduate, Mm -hmm. I mean, even sometimes in high school, right, there's just a lot of preparation to get to that place. And then we probably develop it some more while we're in our training. But here's my question for you. I, I just think that that doctors in general are pretty resilient people. Yeah. But do you think that it's possible that once a doctor becomes an attending and mm-hmm. 
you know, they, they have, I want to say like, you know, they have more control over their life, except they don't really, right. We just delude ourselves into thinking that we have that control, but, but instead, you know, maybe that just the challenges aren't quite as intense. It's kind of like, we're enjoying the fruits of our labor, right? We put in, Mm -hmm. you know, a decade or more of basically our whole life. I used to always joke that, you know, we were developmentally delayed as, Mm -hmm. as, you know, as 20 year olds and then 30 year olds, because all of our friends had all these life experiences, had been making money. Meanwhile, we were just still in school or making like no money or barely any money, you know, like not really doing all those fun things. So I just wonder, do you think that over the course of someone's life that they can lose some of their resilience and then be challenged and have to develop it again? Aha. <laughs> so much in what you're what you're raising. And I, I should say, so you know and people in general know, I've uh, been with and worked with a lot of physicians. I worked for many years in a multidisciplinary clinic setting with physicians and, and other people in healthcare. And also my own interest is very much in mind-body medicine kind of broadly. I come mm-hmm. at it from the mind side, but still that integration. So I have a fair amount of, and then social friends and, yeah. and, and all the rest of that. So I hear what you're saying and that, that rings true for me in my experience of physicians who've kind of gotten through the training phase and they're sort of established and there's a kind of contentment there on the one hand. On the other hand, I think of many people in medicine as beleaguered right now in a lot of ways, even before COVID came in with insurance billing changing and the landscape managed care coming in and specialization. And then now we have COVID. So what it makes me think about, if I could, are are just Mm -hmm. kind of two key points. One is resilience is more than just coping and adapting with a circumstance. The point of resilience biologically actually is the maintenance of internal well-being. That underlying core sense of basic all rightness around which can swirl pain, pressure, weariness, yet another 80 or 100 hour week, yet another night on call. But in the core, there's a basic sense of well-being, which for me, I operationalize as an underlying fundamental sense of needs met enough in terms of our three core biological needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. So that underneath it all, there's a basic sense of peacefulness, contentment, and in a word, love in terms of those three basic needs being met enough, right? So Mm -hmm. if we're to have that core of contentment and well-being deep down inside ourselves, it's not enough to be able to muscle our way through medical school, internship, residency, fellowship, fellowship and so forth. Like you can do that, but that's not true resilience. True resilience is to be able to do that while preserving some underlying sense of well-being and happiness and meaningfulness Mm -hmm. and satisfaction. With your life, yeah, I don't think that that's the case. No, and I've known a number of people. I think of them as crabs. They have a very powerful exoskeleton, defensive structure. They can white knuckle their way through almost anything. But if life comes along, and for something happens, maybe later in life, that cracks that armor. There's not a lot of internal infrastructure, and you can fall a long way before you you hit anything very solid, and so. To me, that kind of way of being resilient, you know, armoring up in a, in a kind of brittle sort of way, is not the ultimate way to do it. The ultimate form of resilience is more Aikido style. It's supple. It's like a willow tree rather than an oak tree that will crack when the winds mm-hmm. blow. Very important point. Second point, thinking about you and also uh, other phys- people in general, including like myself, who you know, when they're doing work, they wish they were with their families. When they're with their families, they don't think they're a good enough professional. Then maybe they don't think they're a good enough spiritual practitioner or athlete or... Like this general not enoughness. Not enoughness. And what I came to realize for myself, it's true in a way that if you specialize in just one thing, you can get really good at it. Martin Seligman, who's a very well-known psychologist, came up with the the theory of learned helplessness, made a comment that is, if you're willing to work for 
you know, 20 years, if you're willing to work 100 hours a week for 20 years and you have a modicum of ability, you can get world-class in anything, mm-hmm. dot, 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 with a lot of sacrifices along the way, including in his yeah. case, his marriage. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we can do that, but it's but it leaves out all this other stuff. So my point, we may not be able to be world-class or really excellent in or, or su- superb, I'll mm-hmm. say superb. In any single thing we do as a parent, a mate, a business person, and a clinician, let's say, let alone any other major roles that interest us. But on the other hand, we can all become superb at the package, the unique package of the things we do. It's a little bit like being a decathlete. You know, Mm -hmm. decathletes, they're world class at the package of 10 events while rarely being world-class in any single one of them. Right. But it's the package. And to me, that's a way we can judge ourselves. Not, not in terms of any particular part of our lives, but how do we do the package as a whole? Mm-hmm. So that at the end of the day, when we're looking back on our day, we can say to ourselves, this was a good day. I was mm-hmm. sincere. I showed up. I did my best. I, I brought a good heart to it. I acknowledged my errors and faults. I repaired when I could. And I'm glad I lived and I learned a little bit and I healed a little bit today. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's just a totally very different perspective <laughs> for sure. I think, you know, so, so many doctors are just so incredibly hard on themselves. So let's actually yeah. transition into compassion and self-compassion because that is yeah. one of the elements that you discuss in the book that I think is, I always, I tell my clients sometimes, I'm like, isn't it so interesting how we believe so deeply that something's wrong with us, mm-hmm. you know, that we're doing a bad job or, you know, something negative about ourselves. And then someone comes in and says, Hey, listen, I want to actually let you know the truth. You've been confused the whole time. The truth <laughs> is you're perfect the way you are. You are the perfect amount. You're not too little. You're not too much. You're just the perfect amount. You are valuable. You are just an amazing human being. And instead of us going like, oh my gosh, are seriously? That's amazing. We're like, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she doesn't really know who I am. She doesn't really know how, how bad I am. So when I tell my clients, like, you can't hate yourself thin. You can't hate yourself to a better life, right? A better mm-hmm. experience of your work or your relationships, you can't like self-loathing or beating yourself up is not going to be the ticket. They really do think that treating themselves in that way has helped them because what they'll do is they'll look at their medical education in particular, and they'll maybe if they didn't get a grade that they thought was good enough or something, they would just beat themselves, you know, into submission, study more, get the grade. And then their brain decided, oh, okay, this is how we create the results that we want. Except what I always say is like, well, that's fine, but you felt you still had like food or maybe alcohol or some over-exercising or like something that you were able to do in order to neutralize the negative experience that you were having in beating yourself up. And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to stop the over, you know, overdoing something. So that old way isn't going to work anymore. But so anyway, I know you you dig into compassion mm-hmm. and self-compassion in the book, and I would love to hear your thoughts about why we actually deserve our own compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pain is a primitive motivator. It's a very powerful one. And research shows that we tend to be more motivated by avoiding pain than by achieving broadly pleasure or enjoyable, mm-hmm. meaningful experiences. That's really true. On the other hand, most pain has no gain. It's just pain. And over time, pain, in, including negative emotions, using that term loosely, such as anxiety, anger, sadness, or shame, or in feelings of inadequacy, those tend to wear us down over time and actually reduce performance over time. So we can motivate ourselves with sticks, let's say, for a quarter or semester or maybe a, some kind of really demanding rotation. But over the course of a 40-year or 50-year professional career, pain as a primary motivator will actually lower performance and as well as have other kinds of 
consequences in terms of physical health, risky behaviors for self-medication and so forth. So that's kind of a bit of a framework here. Compassion, in a word, is a response to suffering. It has two primary elements, empathy and benevolence. So empathy, we feel it. We don't. We have the courage and the large-heartedness enough to let the other person land at least a little in our own heart. We feel it. And but we're not just empathic, like a con artist can be empathic to rip off their marks. There's a benevolence. There's a tender, empathic concern, often with a third element of wanting to help if we can, wanting to do what we can. Key point, oftentimes we can be, we're compassionate for forms of suffering, subtle to anguished physically and mentally. We're, we're compassionate toward them and we can't do anything about them. This diagnosis is terminal. This person has only one way out, and it's through very difficult pain. You know, we are not going to be able to feed those people down the street or across the world, but our compassion is still genuine. Okay. Mm -hmm. Self-compassion just applies that to the one person among all others who wears our name tag. And much research shows, wow, the self-compassion is like a wonder drug. You know, it's funny. Mm -hmm. It makes people stronger. Not wallowing in self-pity. Compassion is where we start. It's not where we end. You know, you, you, you're smacked in the face by life or you're grappling with something difficult. Like, you know, let's say you, you feel you're carrying around 20 or 30 more pounds than you really want to carry around. It's tough to gradually get rid of. That's, ugh. So you feel that. You feel that. You pause. You bring a kind of tender feeling of support and respect to yourself that you would to a friend, let's say, with a similar situation. And then you dust yourself off, you take a breath, and you figure out what to do. All right. So that's self-compassion. Research shows it makes people more resilient. They recover faster from trauma. Uh, It makes people more ambitious, actually. Speaking of motivated professionals like physicians, it makes them more ambitious because they're more willing to risk failure. They're more willing to take a chance. Because they now have an an internalized resource, self-compassion, that can buffer them against oppressive, harsh, scornful, you know, derogatory self-criticism. Self-compassion is great. And we can cultivate it. We can cultivate it in simple ways. I think that that so often I see this where, where women will say, well, I'm afraid to sign up for your program and lose this weight because what if I fail once, you know, yet again? Mm -hmm. Like, will this just be another time? But if you have that self-compassion... Yeah. really cultivated, then, yeah. you know, like, yeah, maybe that will happen. Anything is possible. It's also yeah. possible that it could work, right? That's like, right. let's allow ourselves to go there. But if it doesn't, yeah, I know I've got that soft place to to land because that's, I that's refuse really right. to beat myself up. Yeah, I think of, you know, a classic structure in psychology, you may know it, goes all the way back to Eric Byrne and scripts people live or games people play something. It's it's the idea that inside us, in effect, the, psych, the structure of our psyche has three parts to it. Inner child, nurturing parent, critical parent. That was the original mm-hmm. formulation. In trauma work, there's the the victim, the perpetrator, and the protector. Where and in which a lot of the action is with failed protectors. Well, you could think of it more generally as a sense inside oneself as a of a kind of beleaguered inner being, a beleaguered self with an inner attacker and an inner nurturer. Okay, for most people, that inner attacker is big, like Simon Legree scaled up to King Kong. And the inner nurturer is sort of like a feeble fairy godmother. Oh, (laughs) little Ricky. That's me. I'm little Ricky. So what we can do is we can argue against the inner attacker. And there's some place for that using cognitive methods where you dispute those kind of thoughts and you disidentify, you separate yourself from that Mm -hmm. inner critic and you you have it, which is different from being it. Okay. It's like that annoying person who every so often has something useful to say in the committee. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, okay, Bob, I got it. I got it, Bob. We got it, Bob. We got it. We got to pay attention to the pennies. I got it. Be careful about pennies. Thanks, Bob. Now, Martha. (laughs) Okay. But where the real opportunity is generally is to grow the inner nurturer. And we grow the inner nurturer through the internalization 
of all kinds of nurturing experiences, a sense of being validated by others, our wounds and burdens legitimized. Uh, we get a sense of being appreciated by others, others who are kind, who are compassionate themselves, who see the good in us and so forth. So through having and then repeatedly internalizing those kind of experiences, we can grow what I call the caring committee inside. Mm. Yeah, who's in your caring committee, right? Yeah. If you think about a kind of committee of inner allies who are supportive, encouraging, and all the rest, who's on your caring committee? And mm-hmm. for me, for example, it's a combination of certainly my wife, you know, a cat uh, that was a dear friend of mine for a long time before he passed away, uh, my kids, you know, kind of tough but encouraging rock climbing guides I've gone out with. Stop whining, Hanson, and start climbing, <laughs> you know, but they're not mean about it. Right. But they push you when you need to be pushed. Yeah, Gandalf, Galadriel, you know, inside (laughs) and so forth. And so who's on your caring committee? And that's something that we can really grow and develop, which then enables us and encourages us to be our best and to dream big dreams, dare greatly, as Brene Brown puts it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think when I think of all the, all the, you know, factors that go into resilience, it's like, I mean, it all makes sense, right? Like, doctors deeply are motivated, right? And, and are aspirational and all of that, like that all comes together. It just, it makes so much sense. I mean, we could keep going forever, but yeah. <laughs> I, okay. Let's, let's now talk about doctors heading into this like third wave. Now I was talking before we started recording, I was telling you about kind of where doctors were and yeah. how, how the kind of the, the approach to this has changed and, and just from a mental st- standpoint where doctors are. And what I'm really feeling now is this sense of fatigue and just like, but how much longer? I think there was a lot of like, I can sprint for several months, you know, even though everybody was saying like, this will be a marathon. I think a lot of us were really just like, no, it's not, it's, it's going to be fine. I'm just going to white knuckle it and get through this. And it's just kind of, you know, everything's pointing to that's not going to be the experience that we're going to have. And so I think that it's always perfect timing whenever you get a message, right? You know, because I think it's another way that we beat ourselves up is like, I should have heard, I should have paid attention. I should have, I should have known it was going to be different. No, 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 no. You're here now. You're hearing this now. This is the perfect time for you to hear this message. But so addressing that fatigue, you know, those who are having thoughts of like, I don't know how much longer I can do this, not in a like suicidal sense, but in a, maybe I don't want to be a doctor anymore sense. Like there's Mm -hmm. definitely, there were definitely a lot of people who are like, I didn't sign up for this kind of thing, which of course they did when they became a doctor. Like (laughs) there was no like, oh, and by the way, if there's a pandemic, you don't have to actually help out with that, you know, but I don't think that it's a good idea for us to just look at this like, okay, well, we're going to end up losing some of our Mm. best doctors to their emotional states throughout this pandemic. And then, you know, we don't have really excellent people taking care of all of us. So I'm just curious what your words Mm -hmm. of wisdom would be for somebody who's really feeling like they're struggling, especially from a resilience standpoint. Oh, yeah. There are lessons from people, uh, unfortunately, because of America's long wars over the last 19, 20 years, really unprecedented in our nation's Mm -hmm. history as well. There's a lot of research on the differences that help people get through multiple tours of combat with relatively little psychological wear and tear or less than others. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to name a few key factors. Think of them as like a mental checklist. Number one, sense of meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Just a sense of mission, that what I'm doing matters. Even if I can't see the immediate results, it's part of a larger process that that is worthy and even noble. Second, sense of camaraderie with your folks you're with, people on your shift, your team, the janitors pushing the brooms. I mean, I think a lot about the people who uh, maintain the infrastructure of our medical yeah. system, the cafeteria workers, the the custodians, the people cleaning mm-hmm. the toilets, the people yeah. bagging all that garbage, you know, yeah. they, and doing it safely and often going home and living in fairly risky environments themselves, you know, because yeah. of for economic reasons. So the whole package, sense mm-hmm. of camaraderie, that's important. Third, a recognition of what you don't have control over and coming to terms with that with a focus on where you actually do have agency. The words I choose to use, the words I choose not to use, 
bringing my best effort every day, helping myself learn and grow, you know, what can I have agency toward? And I think here, a close companion of self-compassion is, broadly speaking, the growth mindset. Mm-hmm. Carol Dweck's Carol work Dweck. yeah. originally in educational environments, but we could mm-hmm. certainly broaden it. And it's very akin to my own focus on self-directed neuroplasticity, helping yourself grow and learn every day. You know, that's what's under our control as well. That we can have a sense of agency that every day I've, becoming, I've become at least a little more skillful or a little wiser, a little more large-hearted, a little more soulful. My heart's been tenderized by the suffering I'm dealing with. That and that and I'm and you're redefining the game to one you can win at every day. Yeah. Maybe I can't win at slowing down the rate of people coming into the hospital because I'm in a Midwestern state in America that's going nuts right now with COVID yeah. spikes. But what I can win at is I can continue to grow a little bit every day in my own in my own reactions to or or my own attitude about what's coming in the door. Or in becoming deliberately a little kinder myself mm-hmm. while still doing my job in the face of this fire hose of incoming patient crises. Yeah. So those are those are the big three, meaning and purpose, camaraderie, and focus on sense of agency. And I would really highlight those. And then with that, obviously, going back to the stress diathesis model, as challenges rise, resources must as well. Otherwise, net, net, you're going to start running on fumes, running on empty. And so uh, here's where I think it gets very interesting morally, and this goes back to parenting too, mm. how we make a decision to give them a little less today, to give ourselves a little more today so we can give everybody more tomorrow. Yeah. That's a tough call, as a, whether it's as a parent or as a physician. But I think sometimes we have to just make that call and make it with clear eyes. And it's a necessary call to be able to sustain what I think by all accounts is certainly going to be ballpark a year from reasonable public health estimates before we really start to lean into this thing, absent significant public health measures. Obviously, as you well know, if we had adopted the practices in Mongolia, (laughs) let alone South (laughs) Korea (laughs) or New Zealand, we would be far ahead of this curve. And I just, in my own view, it's just been insane. I'm I bet you agree that mm-hmm. we've closed schools but kept bars open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it should be the opposite. It's okay. been it's been it's been a time of really just like re- you know what it is? It's really recognizing how the circumstance can be the same and how different people's thoughts and beliefs can be, yeah. right? Like yeah. how it just seems so obvious to me <laughs> what to yeah. do. And then someone else thinks that that's the wrong thing and thinks that they should be doing something different. One thing I will say yeah. that to add, partly because in a way, because I'm a guy, I, I, I was, uh, I could see really clearly the sort of shocking burdens and hormonal and psychological disturbances that women go through. Of all kinds, just the, yeah. the the demand, the output, the the dis, the, the perturbations, the disturbances. Because as a non-physician, I, I want to say to you people, <laughs> you know, what I'm observing is that I think in a funny way, in the Western world, but especially in America, there's a kind of waking up from the spell of the last several years or even the last several decades that has disrespected expertise and relentlessly and deliberately dismantled the network of the common good, including in terms of public health systems that has the knits a country together. And it's really about resilience because you can get away with that, kind of like you can get away with hollowing out a house with termites Mm -hmm. for years until a storm finally comes and which reveals then what's been hollowed out from the, from the inside. And I think for many people, there's just an unavoidable, inescapable kind of teaching going back to my roots in the sixties and Mm seventies. That's just a reckoning and a deep lesson about the importance 
of the common good and also a deep, deep appreciation for people on the front lines, physicians, healthcare providers, firemen, paramedics, people in law enforcement who are doing the right thing every day, those who are, you know, a new appreciation. So that's something too to carry with you that I can just tell you as a non-physician, I I can even feel a little choked upness about it. There's an enormous gratitude for people Mm -hmm. in healthcare, really enormous gratitude for you all. Ah, well, thank you. And I just want to encourage everyone listening to let that land Yeah, because what we tend to do is, oh, he's not talking about someone like me or what I do isn't what he's Mm -hmm. talking about, or it's not as impactful or isn't as important. And that really is just not the case. So, wow. Okay. On that note, thank you so much for saying that (laughs) on that note. So I, of course, give everybody the names of your books. We'll have them all linked in the, in the show notes page. You gave us the name of your website. I, I think that this is all such good stuff. What I loved in resilient is how you really kind of divided it up and you weren't like, listen, you need to do all these things all at once. You could do like a chapter a month and really just dig into a certain, certain topic and keep that top of mind for yourself for that month. And there's just lots of ways ways to address it and dig deeper into this. And I love what you're talking about with like the crab, right? Like really yeah. thinking, did you did you develop a tough exoskeleton and yep. you're kind of mush on the inside? Or yeah. do you have, you know, do you have the yeah. keel? Do you and have defense and depth? In a, right. Use defense a football and depth, term. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, layers right. and layers, layers and layers yeah. of resilient yeah. resources inside. Yeah. Yeah. And on your care committee, it's like you got to be a member on that, on that committee too. You know, you, you have to be, you got to lead the way in terms of Mm. your opinion of yourself, right? You've got to think, because I feel like, you know, all the people around you can tell you how great you are. Yeah. And, and so I see it so often people just, they cannot let it, they cannot let it really come in as the truth. Then, then they feel like it's total imposter syndrome. They're like, see, they think I'm so great, but they don't really know. (laughs) <laughs> I really don't know what I'm talking about or something like that. Which you know, if I could, the, the yeah, term, yeah, we're wrapping up and kind of as a parting comment, one, I really want to underline the thing I said about evaluating yourself as a decathlete, evaluating yourself in terms of the total package you are in the context of the challenges you're dealing with, including in the context of Maybe what you weren't, well, maybe in the context of what wasn't well-nurtured or developed in your childhood, depending on your own background, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, judge yourself as the total package yeah. first. And yeah. second, this might sound a little too mushy, but it's true, getting in touch with your own fundamental inherent basic goodness. Yeah. It's Without needing mushy. to have a halo. <laughs> so good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the, there's a kind of much as in other people. Like, I don't know you well, Katrina. I can see, I saw it immediately, that you're a basically good person. I can see that about you. Thank you. Right? It doesn't take a lot. Right. Okay, cool. (laughs) And we see that about others. We can see that about the person we're passing on a street who nods at us while they adjust their mask for a little better coverage. We can see that in other people fairly quickly, right? And we recognize it's true. And you go, yeah, there might be things about them that, uh, you know, not my my cup of tea politically or, uh, you know, not going to be my best friend. And still, they're a basically good person. And yet it's almost a taboo to give ourselves that same recognition in a felt way, not just intellectually, but Mm -hmm. to feel it. We feel it about other people. I feel it about you. I I appreciate you feel it about me. But can we feel it about ourselves? Fundamental, basic goodness that, and and can we take refuge? And again, to use a kind of traditional term, can we rest in or can we return to or resort to a a sort of internal home base? That's our resting state in our core that includes the the felt sense of our own basic goodness, our basic lovingness, uh, good intentions, sure, some exceptions, but a basic inclination toward the good. And I think other than Hannibal the cannibal, very, very, (laughs) very few people go into healthcare who don't have a fundamentally good heart. Right. You know, I try to remind them of that all the time. Like you don't go into this 
you know, yeah. for the money anymore, or, you know, like, <laughs> or, the, or the hourly rate, that's for yeah, or the hourly rate or, or even just, you know, the, the respect and adoration of the community. Cause even that, as you mentioned is, you know, has really gone by the wayside so much. It's you go into this because you care about people you want to make a difference. Yeah. And, and just even having that intention is so pure, right? Yeah. Even if every day you're not a hundred percent showing up, you know, with that, at the forefront of your mind. I love the decathlete thing. I'm for sure going to use that from now on. I like the whole package. I used <laughs> so it for good. myself, honestly. I, it came yeah. out of an experience I had about 30 years ago, which I was a new parent. I was in grad school. I was a dedicated spiritual practitioner. I was starting a business and I had visions of really trying to break through in my career. And I was interested in, in physical health too training mm-hmm. and so forth. And I was a long time, I'm a long time rock climber. And I was telling my friend that I just felt much as you said, inadequate. If I judge myself, if I judged myself by the standards of each one of those parts of my life. And he turned to me and he said, Rick, you know, as a package, as a householder, who's in grad school, da, 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 you're doing that package pretty much better than anybody I know. I was like, Whoa. And this is a friend who was not a flattering kind of person. He was a mm. hard-headed, deeply grounded, honest person. And I was really touched by that. And and I think that's how to that's how to judge ourselves as the package. Yeah. I love it. It's so good. Great. Well, well it's been a so pleasure much, talking with you. Yes, yeah. you too. And thank you so much for coming on. I know this is gonna help so, so, so many people. So thank you again. Mm. Completely my pleasure. Thank you. Did you know that you can find a lot more help from me on my website? Go to katrinaubelmd.com and click on free resources.